This is a Federal News Network podcast. This is a Federal News Network podcast. Any federal employee who's come near classified or secret information knows what happens if they try to publish something or give a speech. The federal government has at least 17 pre-publication review boards with the authority to say no. The whole apparatus has led to what my next guest calls several pathologies. Yale University law professor Ona Hathaway joins me now. Ms. Hathaway, good to have you on. Good to be here. And let's begin with the thesis that you have outlined in a pretty detailed essay published by Yale, and that is that the original intent of reviewing publications started with one agency for one narrow purpose and seems to have morphed over the decades into this giant machinery for squelching people. Tell us the basic idea going on here. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this process started as just a very small mechanism for reviewing highly classified information in the CIA. So the thought was, There are these CIA agents out there and they know lots of highly classified things and we don't necessarily want them going out and writing books about it without the CIA being able to review it and make sure that they're not revealing important classified information. So it started as this very small process just in one agency. And today it is a massive system of prior restraint on speech. And how did that come to be? Other agencies decided they could do this, but isn't there a legal kind of infrastructure under which this ought to be operating? Basically, this started in the CIA, as I mentioned, and then various intelligence agencies began to sort of add their own pre-publication review process. And under President Reagan, he actually issued an executive order requiring all of the agencies that handled classified information to subject those who have access to classified information to pre-publication review. Congress actually got really upset about this, understandably, thought it was a terrible restraint on speech, that it created a real possibility that presidents were going to stifle the free speech of people who had served in the administrations before them, and was about to legislate to do something about it, to basically knock down this executive order that Reagan had issued, and, and Reagan withdrew it. But while you might think that that was a success, what actually happened is instead of having this executive order that governed the whole system, every agency just went off and developed its own pre-publication review process. So now we have this kind of mess of individual pre-publication boards, each with their own rules that exist today. Well, should there be any limit on what someone can say post facto, even if they leave government and knew classified and secret information while they were there? Yeah, absolutely. And to be clear, there are already a whole host of laws, right? So you're still prohibited no matter what, even if we abolish the pre-publication review process today, you'd still be prohibited from revealing classified information. You could be thrown in jail if you did, right? So there's the whole set of criminal laws that apply to former government employees. All that the pre-publication review process does is it adds this additional burden on former government employees which basically says any time you want to write something, you got to submit it back to your agency and they get to read the whole thing and decide if they're going to let you publish it or not. What would happen if someone just published a book that they felt was not revealing secrets and they went ahead and published it and just didn't ask the review board? Would they be in legal trouble at that point? Yeah, they would be. Potentially, if they revealed classified secrets, they, again, could be put in jail. 
But this is actually what happened in this very famous Supreme Court case, SNEP v. U.S., a case in which a former CIA official published a book that included information the CIA considered to be classified. It's actually not entirely clear that it really did include classified information. The court actually never found that it did, and the government actually withdrew claims that actually included classified information. But what they did is they went after him for failing to submit the book for pre-publication review, and then they seized all of the royalties that he earned for the book. And that's one of the big penalties that the federal government has to hold over people who want to publish books without submitting them for pre-publication review. So that's the famous SNEP case. Exactly. And this is, you know, a big deal for people who want to make some money after they leave government by publishing their book. You know, the fact that you can go through all of this. This happened with one of the people who was part of the bin Laden operation. He published a book, Zero Day, and had, I think it was a million dollar advance. It was a huge amount of money. And he published it without submitting it for pre-publication review. And the federal government went and seized his advance and he earned nothing from that book. All right. So, yeah, try it at your peril. We're speaking with Ona Hathaway. She's a professor at Yale Law School and editor at its Just Security Journal. So you mentioned the pathologies this whole process has produced. I guess we've touched on some of them. What are they? So there's some obvious ones. Like if you can't speak as a former government official who knows something about what the government does, you can't speak to the general public. You can't write about matters without going through this incredibly slow, cumbersome pre-publication review process. You know, sometimes if you want to write a book, it can take a year or more to get it approved. If you want to write an article, it can take months. If you want to write an op-ed, it can take months. You know, op-eds, they don't generally stay you know, useful for more than a few hours. So if you have to submit it to this process, it takes a really long time to get approved. It effectively silences you. So that means that you don't have former government officials actually being able to inform the public and write about the things they know something about. That's, I think, a real cost to our democracy. It also has the effect of intimidating, um, intimidating people from speaking. So even if they could get it put through the pre-publication review process, the fact that they have to go through this incredibly cumbersome process, I think for a lot of people, it's just like they decide it's not worth it. You know, why should I go through all of this? It takes forever. It's just easier to stay silent. And that means we don't learn the things that they know. And to what degree does this extend to their knowledge or what knowledge is covered by this? I guess they could write a children's novel and they would be okay without a pre-publication review. But there seems to be a gray area just watching the cable news networks on my studio monitor all day switching around. I see this former official from the intelligence community, that former four-star general opining in this case on Ukraine events, intelligence events, and they're listed as special contributors to this or that network. What kind of structure or limitations are they under and how do they do this day after day? Because obviously they're not checking in with their former agencies. Yeah, I think some of those folks are probably breaking rules, to be honest, that depending on the agency they work for and what their particular review process rules might be, they may have decided to kind of just give up on submitting to pre-publication review. And honestly, that's what a lot of people end up doing because it's kind of impossible to be an effective commentator to write or even to teach. You know, I'm a professor of international law. It would be hard for me to get every slide that I put up in front of my students approved through pre-publication review. And I worked for the Department of Defense as special counsel to the general counsel, and I had top secret SCI clearance. And so I'm covered by these pre-publication review board requirements at the Department of Defense. And when I've tried to get the Department of Defense to tell me, what do I not have to submit to you? Like, 
what what are the kinds of things that you know I can write without having to submit? They always just say, we'll just submit it and then we'll tell you. <laughs> Once I submit it to you, I have to wait around until you approve it. And sometimes, you know, they take way too long and I can't, you know, submit every lecture. I can't submit every piece of writing that I do. And so for a lot of people, they just end up having to kind of throw up their hands and just think, I don't know how to comply with this system. I, I know that I'm not disclosing classified information that would do harm to national security in the United States. And so I just am going to have to do my job and take the risks that, that accompany that. And what would be the remedy for this to simply get rid of the PRBs and go back to the existing statutory limitations on divulging secrets? Or is there some legislative or regulatory fix you think could help? Yeah, I think certainly one possibility is to just get rid of it altogether and rely on the criminal justice system. So that that is a possibility. But I think that you could go to some kind of more intermediate solution, which is a much more minor pre-publication review process. So one possibility would be invite people to submit their work for pre-publication review if they have any concerns that it might possibly include classified information and then give them a safe harbor from criminal prosecution for disclosing classified information if they've done that. You know, so I write a book, I am a little bit worried about it. I want to be sure there's nothing in here that might be classified. I submit it. And when I get the green light from my former agency, then I know that when I publish it, that I don't have to worry about running into trouble with the federal government. So that would be one possibility. There also could be much greater clarity about actually what has to be submitted. Right now, it's just so broad. It's often really unclear what you're supposed to submit. And right now, the way the pre-publication review rules work, it binds you for an entire lifetime. And I can tell you, having worked, you know, I just worked for a year at the Department of Defense, so it wasn't a particularly long time, but the secrets that I knew are not particularly interesting anymore. And so I think a lot of this could be significantly constrained if it applied for, say, one, two, three, four, five years, as opposed to your entire lifetime. And that would also reduce the bulk of the information that was coming into the boards, and therefore they might be able to review the stuff they do get much more quickly. So there are a number of possible reforms to really make this system much more streamlined and much more sensible. Ona Hathaway is a professor at Yale Law School and an editor at its Just Security Journal. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to her latest essay at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure, thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.